0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me your host Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Shagang Shipping Company Limited and HNA Group Company Limited. The citation for this case is 2020 UKSC 34. And the background to this case is a little bit complicated but hopefully once we get past that and into the crux of the matter everything should fall into place. It all begins with a contract to charter a ship in the summer of 2008 between the appellant, Shigang, and a subsidiary of the respondent, HNA Group. HNA Group actually gave a guarantee for the performance of its subsidiary under the contract, and that guarantee is governed by English law. So that is why even though this case involves companies from Hong Kong and China, it is being argued in the UK. Anyway, the ship was delivered in 2010, but only six months later, the subsidiary began to default on its payments. The appellant pursued legal action against the subsidiary through arbitration, and eventually the contract was terminated, and a partial award for damages was made. Around the same time, the appellant also began the current action against the respondent in the UK's commercial court, under the guarantee that we mentioned earlier. Interestingly, part of the defence that was raised by the respondent was that the appellant had successfully secured the contract in the first place by paying bribes to the employees of the subsidiary company. As evidence of this, there were confessions by three individuals which came to light after an investigation by the Chinese Public Security Bureau. Things then took an even darker turn when the appellant came back and alleged that those confessions had been obtained by torture and were therefore inadmissible as evidence in the legal proceedings in the UK. Mr Justice Knowles decided to side with the appellant, and found that the argument that there was bribery was not made out, and furthermore that the use of torture by the Chinese Public Security Bureau could not be ruled out. The Court of Appeal disagreed with the approach that had been taken in the Commercial Court, and therefore sent the case back down to be heard by a different judge on the basis that the original decision was unsustainable. However, the appellants were obviously not happy about the other side getting another bite of the cherry, and did not see anything wrong with the approach taken by Mr Justice Knowles, so they appealed to the Supreme Court to have that original decision reinstated, and that is where we pick things up. The question that needed to be answered is whether Mr Justice Knowles took the correct approach to this question, and so in order to answer this we need to examine the criticisms that were made by the Court of Appeal. These can be split into four main points which we will now examine in turn. The first criticism was that the judge considered the bribery issue before the torture allegations, and this was not the correct logical sequence that needed to be followed in order to make a proper evaluation of the evidence. Instead, the Court of Appeal held that the judge should have taken a view on the torture allegations first, and, following that, if they had concluded that the confessions were admissible, the judge could then have decided what weight the evidence ought to be given in the context of the bribery allegations. For the justices of the Supreme Court, they noted that this was indeed a logical approach, but that does not mean that this suggestion from the Court of Appeal should be made mandatory, or that other approaches lack validity. Ultimately, this is a question for the trial judge, and the fact that Mr Justice Knowles assumed that the evidence was admissible was not problematic because he later concluded that there was no bribery in this case, and therefore evaluation of the torture claims would be redundant. The second criticism was that Mr Justice Knowles did not ask and answer the correct legal question so far as what weight should be accorded to the evidence from the confessions. Those of you who were paying attention during the first point can probably see where this is going, though. At the trial, the judge made an assessment of the allegations of bribery and found those allegations wanting to the extent that he concluded that there was no bribery whatsoever. The only evidence of bribery came from the confessions, and so even if the judge did not explicitly spell it out, it is clear from the conclusion that there was no bribery that the confessions had little or no weight as evidence. Said conclusion was a reasonable one based on the facts of the case, and so the judge's consideration of the confessions was sustainable. The third criticism was that Mr Justice Knowles did not take into account all of the details of the confessions that were made in relation to the bribery allegation, and therefore made a legal error. It was the opinion of the Court of Appeal that each of the confessions should have been dealt with individually, instead of altogether. In a similar fashion to their response for the first point, the justices of the Supreme Court held that while, yes, it would have been preferable if the confessions had been considered systematically, it was not as if they had not been considered at all. It was clear that the trial judge did address the confession evidence of all three individuals and as a result no error of law was committed. The fourth and final criticism made of the decision by Mr Justice Knowles was that another legal error was made by his failure to dismiss the allegation of torture entirely after he found that the allegation was not made out on the balance of probabilities. However, this line of argument doesn't really work after we note that the judge had already concluded that there was no bribery, whether the confessions were secured by torture or not. On top of this though, the Supreme Court was keen to point out that even if it was the case that the trial judge had surmised that torture had not been proven on the balance of probabilities, it would still be reasonable for a judge to find that torture was a real possibility in the case, and such a possibility could undermine the reliance placed on such evidence. In general, when it comes to hearsay evidence, an assessment of the weight that evidence should be given is not limited by the civil standard of proof that we are all familiar with. Overall then, the four criticisms made of Mr Justice Knowles were not justified. The appeal was successful, and the original decision, that there was no bribery, was restored. As we come to our own analysis of this case, I think we have to begin by saying that the approach taken by the Supreme Court with respect to evidence that may be contaminated by torture is to be welcomed. Clearly, this is the sort of subject that is not black or white, and an approach based on the civil standard of proof, where we say that if a confession is more than 50% likely to have been obtained by torture, then it's inadmissible, but if it's less than 50% then it's completely fine, that just seems absurd. Unfortunately, despite its proven ineffectiveness, torture is a method of information gathering that remains relatively commonplace in certain parts of the world, and it is important that the courts in the UK are set up to deal with this sad fact. That means being set up to deal with the human rights implications of accepting evidence that has been obtained through torture, and taking a critical view of the evidential burden that needs to be overcome. It is this careful and nuanced understanding that the Supreme Court has restored with this judgement. Instead of prescribing an approach like the Court of Appeal attempted to, there is now a much greater flexibility offered to trial judges, so that they are able to assess the quality of any confession themselves. Furthermore, by not setting a threshold, there is a clear message that any evidence that is tainted by torture is potentially inadmissible, which should be a warning sign for any rogue states given how many contracts with an international element are governed by UK law. Finally, before we finish, I think it is worth saying that this should be of special concern for China for a few different reasons. On a geopolitical level, the relationship between the UK and China has been a rather strange one that seeks to toe a fine line between wanting to be close to them because of their economic might and rejecting them because of their dubious record when it comes to things like human rights and also aligning the UK with America's tough stance on China as well. Most recently we have seen this played out in the context of 5G, where the UK wavered on Chinese participation in setting up new infrastructure. What this case begins to show us is that while the government can afford to hem and haw, the courts will take a much stricter line when it comes to torture, and that is unlikely to change at any point in the future. The reason that I bring the actions of the Chinese state up in the context of this case between two companies is because firstly, and most obviously, there was a reliance on confessions from the Chinese Public Security Bureau, which is a state authority that has been criticised in the past by the likes of Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch for relying on torture as part of its investigations. Secondly, in China, the public and the private sector are very closely entwined, and so there is not really any company that is truly separate from the state in the same way that we might expect here in the UK. In this case, the Respondent was a Chinese company, but their subsidiary was based in Hong Kong. Unfortunately, in more recent times, it is becoming especially hard to distinguish between these countries, and the courts will do well to place much greater scrutiny on the activity of companies based in Hong Kong. The pro-democracy demonstrations have struggled to regain traction in the light of the coronavirus pandemic, And the Chinese Communist Party has used this as an excuse to tighten its grip on the territory. The best that the UK can do in this situation is to stick to its principles, and that begins in the courts. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. I want to say a very special thank you this week to several people who have uh, left reviews of the podcast on iTunes, especially to Vivian's. S8N9T, and to Mike Nix as well. We're actually on 197 reviews on iTunes now, so much appreciation to everyone who has left a review. If we can get it to 200 by the end of the year, that would be absolutely phenomenal. So if you are listening to the podcast now and you want to help in some way, then that is definitely the way to do it. I'll be back with another episode next week, but for now, bye!